Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. good podcastville you found the bystander podcast today my guest is scott hamilton from lee ham news how you doing sir i'm doing well thanks for having me on board tim it's good to see you i think i saw you taking takeout the other day um and that's about it i haven't seen you for a good year like since pre-covid well it's it's been tough and and fortunately now my wife and i have both vaccinations we're raring to go uh last uh week we went to uh, dinner out and a movie it was like old friday night date night <laughs> happy for you that sounds like exactly what i'd like to do right now i think that's what i miss the most of covid is the socialization around meals yeah just just getting around town and and talking to people and uh, getting into to have uh, dinner with people and it's it's been a tough year yeah um so Scott is a media publisher um, with the topic of aviation. You've been doing this for quite some time. What got you started in um, writing and aviation? Well, I actually became a journalist right out of community college back in 1979. And I'm sorry, back in 1971. And in 1979, I went to work for the airline industry uh, knocked around that for about five years. And in 1985, went back into journalism writing about the airline industry. In 1989, I uh, formed a company with two British colleagues, which we sold 10 years later. And uh, then I became a, a consultant, a community activist over in Sammamish, where I lived at the time. I went on the planning commission over there. Uh, in... Um, uh, 19, uh, no, in 2008, I created Leham News, uh, which is an online newsletter uh, about commercial aviation. 
and I've been doing that since 2008. Do you have um, a plan of selling this corporation at some point? Well, I'd like to. I'm, I'm past retirement age, uh, and as we were doing this, I've had to continue to work to help pay for the house. <laughs> yeah, it's not uh, the cheapest place to live on earth right here on well, the island. And setting aside the politics of it all, because I don't really want to get into that, just as we were going out to bid, uh, Donald Trump uh, took over in the White House. He imposed a 20% uh, tariff on Canadian wood, which is where a lot of the wood comes to build here on the island. So immediately all our wood costs went up 20%. That's crazy. Yeah. And then and then the building boom started, so concrete costs goes up. And all of that led into to major cost hikes that we hadn't planned on. And then, of course, you get into change orders that are just part of what goes on. You get into breaking ground for the foundation and you hit on the south end of the island in particular uh, yellow clay, which is to use the technical term, it's like snot. Um, and, you know, it just goes up and up. Yeah, I'm not so knowledgeable about import, export, and tariffs, but I know that this COVID times has really made me want to continue to source things correctly and, and buy local and, and try to get things that are less traveled. And, you know, I'm pretty sure, sure there's wood in America, just like there's wood in Canada. It's, it's kind of a crazy system how we get these deals done. I think the first time when I was a little kid, there was a, a, something to do with asparagus. We could grow asparagus in Washington really, really well. And then all of a sudden it kind of became against the law to grow asparagus in Washington because we had an import deal with somebody, some other country that grew asparagus um, exclusively. And I was just like, how did politics get into my food? You know? Yeah. Who, who knows? Crazy. So there's been a lot in the last two years going on with um, the airline industry, even before COVID hit. What are some of the big takeaways that COVID has changed the, the flight industry? Well, the, the pandemic, of course, has completely upended uh, passenger travel. Uh, it's closed borders around the globe, particularly in Europe and here in uh, North America. We can't go into Canada. Can Canadians can't come into the United States, uh, except under very limited circumstances. Within Europe, travel is done. Uh, you can't really come from Europe to the United States and vice versa, except under very limited circumstances. For here in the Puget Sound in particular, of course, that hurts Boeing. And Boeing was under great pressure anyway because of the grounding of the 737 MAX uh, beginning in March of 2019. The COVID pandemic really took root in March of 2020. The wide body demand is completely dried up, which again, for Boeing, because the MAX was grounded, that was where they were getting their cash flow in their commercial aircraft operations. Uh, they were doing 14 airplanes a month for the 787. They're down to five. They're consolidating production in South Carolina. The 777 demand has completely dried up. Uh, they're only producing two 777s a month uh, right now, and, and most of those are freighters. The uh, 777X isn't certified. Uh, the MAX is now recertified. 
but they're delivering 450 airplanes out of inventory, very few out of new production. And it's going to be years before Boeing gets back to any semblance of normalcy. Airbus is not quite the same uh, way because, of course, they didn't have an airplane that was grounded. But the the overall reduction of production for the A320, the A330, the A350 has all been impacted because of the pandemic. And that that turns into billions of dollars of loss when they don't have uh, new orders for new planes, correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and again, Boeing's position is, is exacerbated because of, of the uh, grounding of the MAX for 20 months. Boeing had to go out and, and borrow uh, something, I think it was uh, $27 billion. They're going out to borrow some more uh, to uh, continue to get its work its way through this. Um, it's it's just been devastating on Boeing. And of course, for Puget Sound, it's been devastating to the workforce as well. Now, you're going to have to refresh my memory because I only have bits and pieces of uh, my memory left at all. But <laughs> regarding uh, Boeing, were, wasn't there talks about them pulling out of Everett and Washington State altogether over something? Uh, well, there, there's been that talk all along and the same thing with Renton. You know, it's, it's my view that once the 737 line finally closes, just as a, a mat- natural life cycle, which would be around the 2033 era, I think, I think Renton uh, production will close and, and the rest of that uh, whole uh, factory there, which at one point was about twice as big a footprint uh, in, in all respects, uh, it will be closed. Uh, the commercial project and the residential project called the landing over and renting off of 405 is all where 757 and other 737 work used to be. 757, of course, discontinued production in 2005. And Boeing undertook what was then called the move to the lake. Well, when the 737 production finally ends next decade, I think you'll see the balance of that close. Now, up in Everett, uh, Boeing, uh, particularly when when you had the triple seven X program that was going to be launched in 2013, Boeing threatened to move that production elsewhere unless the union and the state uh, came up with concessions. The state can line up with tax breaks, the union doing givebacks on health care and pension costs. So Boeing has has held it over. Uh, our head here many times about, well, if you don't do what we want, and if you don't give us what we want, we'll move production elsewhere. That's how the second 787 line wound up in Charleston. And and with that, that's why the, the first line is now closing in Everett and moving to Charleston as a result of the pandemic. What does the max part of the 737 mean? Well, <laughs> there's a couple it, planes that are called Max, right? Well, you, you've got a four-member family. You have the Max 7, the Max 8, the Max 9, and the Max 10. And it's for maximum flexibility, maximum range, maximum performance, maximum economy. That was the, the theory behind the name Max. And, of course, Max being just a, a shortened version of maximum. Okay. So what is it a... Uh... Alaska Airlines that Russell Wilson is involved in? Yeah. Or back in the Seahawks. Perfect still is, but yes. 
Um, he, oh, shout out to Greg Nance, the ultimate runner on the island, who has a commercial for them as well. Um, he Russell had this weird post a while back where he kept saying unlimited. I'm Mr. Unlimited. And it, it, a lot of people thought he was a little off his rocker. So I'm wondering if um, that airline is going to go with 737 Unlimited Russ edition <laughs> if he stays. Yeah, I don't know. And, and, of course, we've been seeing the reports in the newspapers about the possibility of Wilson being traded somewhere. And he's unhappy. Um, you know, he's he's complained about being sacked all the time. And for that, he has a very legitimate complaint. But I don't know, the last two seasons, it seems like in the second half of the season, his throwing arm has been really good to the other team. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not fully convinced that Russ is any, uh, any longer indispensable to the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, correct. And I think wherever you're going to go, you're going to find yourself on your butt in the NFL. I don't care how good you are. <laughs> That's that's true, but the offensive line is has has a lot of work to do to protect the quarterback, whoever it is, because the last several seasons, well, really since frankly the second Super Bowl, uh, mm-hmm. which Russell did a nice one yard line pass interception, uh, the the offensive line has just really kind of stood aside and given a written invitation to the other team and. And Russell winds up on his uh, rear end many, many times in many games. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel like the organization has tried with free agents and, and drafts and things just have not worked out. Um, I'm one of those guys that think he should throw the ball sooner. But uh, some yeah, of that playground you, stuff is pretty exciting to watch, too. Yeah. If you, if you watch Tom Brady, and I'm believe me, I'm no Tom Brady fan, but you have to admire his skill and his work. He gets rid of that ball almost as soon as he touches it. Yeah, I think it's like a four-step uh, drop, two seconds. He had a rough time with the Panthers uh, early on in the season where the offensive line was just kind of standing aside, and he got sacked quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But but over the years, Brady would get rid of that ball almost immediately while Russell, and and give him credit for being twinkle toes, he would dance around the, the uh, backfield a lot trying to avoid – all those defensive players that his offensive line let through. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting off season for sure. Yeah. Um, same with the Sounders losing Jordan Morris to ACL injury as well. Yeah. But we're here to talk about some planes in the Island here. Um, so how does, what, is, what are the main competitors to Boeing? Is that Airbus and Virgin? Well, no, it's it's just Airbus. Uh, it's it's really a duopoly now. There there are emerging, uh, well, really one serious emerging competitor, and that's China. Uh, China really won't be a, a serious competitor for another generation. Uh, they're working on uh, an airplane called the Comac C919, uh, which is basically the same airplane to compete against the 737 and the A320. And it's already about seven or eight years late uh, because building airplanes is hard. It's difficult. It's the integration of, of everything is uh, tremendous. Learning how to certify the airplane. You know, they wanted to put the airplane in service in 2016, uh, maybe even a little earlier. I think they'll be lucky to get it in service next year. So I, I guess it's really six years, but nevertheless, uh, 
it'll take them another generation. The C919 will not be an even level playing field competitor with the 320 or the 737, but it's the next airplane and the next airplane after that that uh, Boeing and Airbus really have to worry about. Is China going to make it out of cheap plastic and say made in China on the side of it too? <laughs> well, who knows? Uh, <laughs> right now, the bigger challenge is, is ending the trade war that uh, Trump started with China. China is not uh, buying, hasn't placed a new order for Boeing airplanes since 2017 when Trump started the trade war, uh, while Airbus has been selling airplanes to China up until the pandemic time. And uh, China so far is refusing to recertify the, the 737 MAX. Yeah, they China claims that, yeah, China claims that it has technical questions remaining, but uh, the conventional wisdom within the aviation circles is that they're not going to recertify the airplane until the trade war is over. Now, Boeing sets at the, at the table um, of certification of airplanes. So they're basically inspecting their own thing and certifying it. Is Airbus duly um, granted that same opportunity? Yeah, it's and it's really by necessity. Um, the the It's not fully self-certification because the agency, the FAA here in, in this country, EASA in Europe for Airbus, they do the certification, but you have designated representatives from Boeing for the FAA and, and Airbus for IASA, because just from a pure practical standpoint, neither regulator has the resources that are needed to do all the work themselves. And they don't have the engineers who design the airplanes. Uh, they don't have, have the people with the inherent institutional knowledge. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, and and this is true in, in the U.S. with the Food and Drug Administration. The industry kind of regulates itself or or inspects itself. Mm -hmm. All of that is is just the nature of the beast. What happened here with with the Max controversy is that the FAA gave Boeing too much authority over what it was doing and didn't exercise enough oversight. And that's coming back a little bit. Now, now Bo, uh, the FAA is really in Boeing's knickers, if you will. And for, quite frankly, that's part of the problem why the certification of the 777X is delayed. Uh, that was supposed to enter service in either December of 2019 or the first quarter of 2020. And there was about a nine-month delay because GE, the engine provider, had to go back and, and redesign some stuff with the engine. And then, and then the max grounding happened, and the certification scrutiny occurred, and and it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that with the FAA under fire for the max certification process, that they would go back and take a look at everything they were doing for the triple seven X, and now Boeing is going to be lucky to see that inter service in late twenty twenty three. Uh, you have Emirates Airline, which is the largest customer for the 777X, already saying that it may not be able to, until 2024. So if you could, can you bring uh, the listeners back into speed here about the timeline of when that plane was introduced and the first crash? I, I think it was 
Ethiopia was the first crash? Well, Liner was the first crash. Ethiopia was the second. Yeah, the, the MAX program was launched in July of 2011 with a, an order from American Airlines. And Boeing was actually maneuvered into launching the MAX program as opposed to a, a brand new design because Airbus went into American and was poised to sell them 400 airplanes. And American up until that point had been an exclusive Boeing customer. So Airbus went in, they were poised to sell them up to 400 airplanes. And that prompted uh, Jim McNerney, the CEO of Boeing at the time in Chicago, to go forward and launch the the, uh, re-engine 737, which later became known as the MAX. Jim Allball, who was the CEO of Boeing Commercial Airplanes here in Seattle, wanted to go forward with a brand new airplane. Uh, Boeing at that point had not yet had its first flight of the 787. That program was billions of dollars in uh, cost overruns. It was years late. They hadn't had the first flight of the 747-8. That was running late. It was running over budget. The uh, KC-46 program had just been awarded in February of 2011 by the Pentagon. Uh, As we now know, that's billions of dollars uh, behind uh, uh, budget and behind schedule. So Boeing had a lot of financial pressures going on at the time. So they, they launched the derivative of the 737 that they thought this ought to be an easy, easy program. One of the reasons that it took from 2011 to May of, of 2017 for the first delivery and entry into service is that it had a new engine that was being put on the airplane uh, called a leap engine, which was bigger and had a larger diameter than, than the CFM 56 that was on the 737 that was in service at the time. And, and that became important and relevant to these crashes that, that later occurred. But Boeing hoped that they would get that airplane to the customer on time and on budget to prove that Boeing commercial airplanes could, in fact, deliver on its promises. Well, they actually beat the, the delivery by a couple of months, wound up the airplane was still about a couple billion dollars over budget, but the airlines didn't care. And so the airplane entered service with a Lion Air affiliate, uh, Melindo Airways, in May of 2017. And in October 2018, about 18 months later, is when the Lion Air crash happened, the uh, October 28th or 29th of 2018. And that airplane was only five months old, brand new airplane. Initially, Boeing dismissed the the problem as being a, a pilot problem, an airline problem, which was kind of natural because Lion Air really has a poor safety record or did at that time. Europe at one point had even banned Lion Air from flying to Europe. The safety was so bad. But, but as we now know, within a week of that accident, Boeing was taking a look at the uh, Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System, NCAS, and they realized within a week that that had a, a some relevance to why the airplane crashed. The outside world really didn't know that immediately. But this the MCAS is what would drive the nose down if, if it detected a stall. And we, we now know that it falsely detected the stall because the MCAS was hooked up only to one A uh, angle of attack sensor. I mean, this gets really 
detailed and I don't know how much. Wasn't there a lack of training about that software as well to the pilots? Well, the pilots didn't even know about it because, because as we now know, uh, Boeing took it out of the, uh, the pilot manual, the, the training manual. And what we now know, and this is really ironic, is that Lion Air had asked Boeing for pilot simulator training, and Boeing said, you don't need it. So then we fast forward to the following March, March of 19, and that's when the Ethiopian Airlines accident happened on March 10th, local time, 2019. Um, and, And again, it was an MCAS triggered event where the plane took off, the AOA sensor failed. Uh, they, as far as I know, haven't discovered precisely why. They think it might have been a bird strike. And the and the plane kept, uh, the AMCAS kept pushing the nose of the plane down. And that airplane never got higher than 800 feet. And it just nosed over and, and crashed. And that's when they were... Uh... Yeah. Within three days, it was grounded worldwide. And what, what's the current status of that airplane right now? Well, the MCAS has been redesigned so that it's, it doesn't repetitively push the nose down, and it's been redesigned so that it doesn't have the strength that it did. The pilots could not override the MAX with their own strength. Now they can, and the nose will only be pushed down once. And there are now two AOA sensor hookups, and Europe is requiring what's called a synthetic sensor for the third AOA hookup. And the airplane uh, was recertified by the FAA this past November. Uh, Europe's EASA recertified the airplane in January, uh, just a a couple months ago. Canada recertified it in January. Uh, Brazil recertified it, I believe that was in November. China has not recertified it. Australia has recertified it. Uh, so so things are moving ahead, but now we're in the pandemic and there aren't a lot of airlines that want very many of the airplanes. So it's going to take Boeing a good two years to burn off this inventory of 450 airplanes that they built but could not deliver during the grounding. Wow. So there's 450 airplanes that are fully built right now that are have no homes to go to? Well, the, they they have most of them have homes. There have been about 100 cancellations of those that were already built, and those are now called whitetails. I think Alaska Airlines took a handful of whitetails. United Airlines is going to take 25 whitetails, I understand. Um, But but you have, um, and then there are some airlines that that simply went out of business. Jet Airways was a customer. If you go by Renton, You'll see a number of 737s uh, in Jet Airways colors. Same thing over at Boeing Field. That airline doesn't exist anymore, and those airplanes have to be resold. But, yeah, there were a total of about 450 that were built during the grounding. Uh, Once the grounding was lifted, Boeing started to deliver some of those airplanes, as well as some new production line airplanes. Uh, They had restarted the production at very low rate. Uh, actually back in May. So they still have probably 400 of those airplanes. I think 50 of them may have been delivered by now. My son had a couple questions for you that I want to relay for my 13-year-old. And I think it's relative to the nose dipping on those planes and the crash. 
he asked me to ask you, um, how much time does a pilot um, spend on autopilot while flying a plane? Kind of how does the autopilot work? And um, was this is my question to wrap that up too? Is uh, was the was was these crashes during autopilot or were they they um, manning the plane at the time? Yeah, the both crashes happened shortly after takeoff. Uh, Lion Air was in climb out. It got as high as five thousand feet, roughly. Uh, the plane was not on autopilot. Uh, in fact, if if the plane was on autopilot, uh, the MCAS did not engage. Uh, Ethiopian was on to climb out again. It, it only got about 800 feet. Uh, it was on under manual control. Uh, how much time is a plane on autopilot? Well, basically anytime it's at cruising altitude or, or probably once the flaps come up uh, on takeoff, it, the plane probably goes on to autopilot. Uh, once once the airplane is landing, uh, pretty much once once you get down to to the point where you're starting to lower the uh, flaps, uh, I think you will generally see the pilot taking over and flying it uh, manually. Uh, there is what's called Category Three Auto Land, where in inclement weather. The airplane can actually land itself, and then the pilot takes over after the uh, plane is on the runway, and he'll activate the thrusters, reversers, and uh, steer onto the taxiway, and so on. That's generally I mean, that is an incredibly simplistic way to answer the question. Now, a pilot uh, certainly can fly the airplane if he's at altitude or at any point during the flight. And some pilots like to do that to, to keep their skills up. But it's pretty rare that you'll see a pilot actually flying the airplane uh, during during the cruise part of the flight. Okay. And does it work kind of like your car cruise control? Well, it's, it's, it's more than that. The cruise control on a car only uh, affects the speed of the car. Mm-hmm. And the driver is still steering it he's still braking it he's he's still controlling the car uh, it would probably be more like the auto drive that's in tesla where you sit back and the car drives you're not supposed to fall asleep you're not supposed to divert your attention just as a pilot in the in an airborne airplane isn't supposed to fall asleep or divert his attention he's still supposed to monitor the inst- instruments he's still supposed to keep an eye out the window um and and it would be the the analogy would be closer to the Tesla auto system for for us layman to understand that it's it's more much more sophisticated than cruise control. All right, what do you know about that UFO that was spotted two weeks ago? Only what I read in the papers. Don't know a damn thing about it. Have you ever done a article on UFOs? Nope. Okay. Um, do you believe in them? Well, I, I guess the answer is kind of it depends. <laughs> in the in the in the typical context of UFO, you mean an unidentified flying object from outer space? Um, why not? Um, yeah. uh, I mean, after all, we're putting UFOs on Mars. We're we're putting UFOs on the moon. If you were a little moon resident, they you know what the hell is that? Um, 
I, most UFOs, I think, are are natural phenomena or secret things out of Area 51. That's interesting that they're opening up all that documentation about that after so long. Yeah, well, I think there's probably a lot more documentation they're not opening up than they are. Yeah, there's things called, what is it, redaction? Yes. I'm just going to cross himself out of that name, <laughs> out of a piece of paper. It's never there. Do you have a fa- favorite uh, airplane movie? Um, like Airplane? <laughs> well, that, that's, that was obviously a very good send-up. Airplane 2 wasn't very good, but the first airplane was was a good send-up of, of the disaster movies uh, that came out shortly after the movie Airport. Um, you know, I, I, I like the high and the mighty. I like Island in the sky, uh, going back to the 1950s with John Wayne. Uh, the, those were based on actual events. Uh, so there was truth weaved in with the storyline, uh, airport, uh, the original airport with Dean Martin, uh, and Jacqueline Bissett. I love Jacqueline Bissett. So I love Dean Martin. Dino's my guy. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, there've been bombs and all that stuff, but they're, they're, they're really, that was a completely fictional story for the most part. Um, and, um, the, the, uh, storylines and there were really, you know, pretty bad mm-hmm. <laughs> when you, when you come right down and look at it. Uh, you know, I don't think it, you see a real, an airport manager really going out to, to basically help kind of dig an airplane out of the mud. Uh, but, but, um, you know, it was, it was an entertaining movie. Uh, you know, in terms of, of realism, uh, there was a TV movie about United Airlines uh, Flight 232 that crashed in Sioux City back in 1989. And, and uh, uh, on TV, it was called The Rescue of Flight 232. Uh, now it's called A Thousand Heroes. And, and that's a, a really good movie in terms of uh, being factual and the rescue efforts and the, the cockpit coordination of, of uh, the uh, flight in distress. Uh, so I would say in terms of, of um, high quality movies, uh, that actually is probably my favorite. I remember a story from vaguely remember a story from my childhood where a sports team crashed and then they had to uh, eat the dead to stay alive in the snow and, Yep. Was that based on a true story at all? That indeed was. It was up in the Andes. Up in uh, the Andes. What was the movie called or the book? Oh, I, I, there were actually two movies done, and I don't remember the name of either one of them. Uh, but uh, I did see the movie, um, and this is back, gosh, in uh, the 70s, 70s. or 80s. Yeah. yeah. And it was, a, it was a Fairchild F-27 turboprop that, that uh you just bringing that out of your hat (laughs) yeah that did not climb high enough uh to get over the andes and it it had what's called a controlled flight into terrain a sea fit and there were survivors uh and and uh as as the injured died uh, to survive others resorted to cannibalism but it was yeah that was a true story yeah that messed me up for a while (laughs) it's it's tough to think about that, but yeah. you know, if it comes down to survival, you know, they're dead already. I don't know. Yeah. Um, what's the future for, for Boeing and 
the legislation here in Washington state, is there a, a chance that a new type of plane is going to come out? What, what kind of demand for plane planes are there going to be here in the future? Because well, travel is definitely limited. Well, travel should be coming back by the middle of the decade, if not uh, uh, by 23, 24, certainly by 25. Again, absent any other things. And Boeing has to do a new airplane. The 737 just is not competitive with the A321. Uh, Airbus has has a broad family of single-aisle airplanes that are selling well. the 737 is really on the back of the Max 8, which is a 175-passenger airplane. The Max 7 uh, only has about 55 sales. The Max 9, only about 250 sales. The Max 10, only about 500 sales. The, you can't have a family that's built on the back of one airplane, basically. And so Boeing has to come out with a new airplane if it's going to stay in, in the uh, commercial airliner business. And I'm assuming that it would like to stay in the business. Uh, now, will that be done here in Puget Sound? I have serious doubts about that. Um, I, I'm one of those that are really pretty negative on the future of Boeing here in Puget Sound. I think I think it's very possible that that you could see uh, Charleston become uh, uh, superseding Puget Sound as as a producer. I. Th- think it's possible that the San Antonio, Texas, where Boeing has a facility, that's where they're doing the Air Force One work, um, might be a contender for that. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm real pessimistic on the future of Boeing here in Puget Sound. Well, if Boeing, they lose about $20 billion, COVID's still around, travel restrictions are still restricting. Um, was there... Pay, there were some fines and payouts too, right? For these two crashes. Well, yes, of course. You you, you naturally have liability, civil liability lawsuits filed by the families of the victims in, in each case, and and uh, I believe Boeing had um, set aside five hundred million dollars initially to settle the Lion Air lawsuit. I'm not sure about the Ethiopian lawsuit. And and then there was a deferred prosecution agreement entered into with the Department of Justice to settle the criminal probe that DOJ was doing. And even though it was headlined as about a $2.5 billion uh, settlement with the Department of Justice, if you really look through the, the fine print on that, only $244 million of that was actually related to the criminal uh, probe. Uh, another 500 million was added. Uh, four or 500 million was added to that. So, the, so in the end, Boeing took an additional charge of 740 million dollars. I think it was uh, against earnings for that settlement. But the other, you know, billion and a half dollars were were basically monies that Boeing had already agreed to settle with its customers for for the grounding and delayed airplanes and and uh, that sort of thing. So so Boeing really came out of that deferred prosecution agreement with a slap on the wrist and and if you read the DPA every everything that happened at Boeing was the fault of these two test pilots 
And I don't think anybody really believes that's the case. No, I don't. Yeah, for sure. That's so, so talk about a couple of scapegoats. Yeah, that's hemorrhaging a lot of money as a corporation. Did they get um, stimulus or PPE help as well? They, they declined that because the terms and conditions required them to give the government warrants or stock, and they didn't want to do that. Now, one thing that hasn't been... Interesting. Yeah, one, one thing that hasn't been asked or answered yet that I've seen is if any of this settlement uh, is tax deductible. And the reason I raised that is that back in 2004, I believe it was, somewhere in that era, Boeing was fined $661 million by the federal government uh, for trade secret theft and other uh, misdeeds. Uh, And initially they were going to deduct that from the taxes and there was an outcry and Boeing said that it wouldn't. Now that's not to say that they didn't later on after everybody was looking the other way, but I wonder if any of this DPA is tax deductible. That's a very interesting question. Yes. Far be it from me to be a cynic. (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk about some uh, local fare here in, in the island. You've been on the island about four years now? Is that what I recall? 2016, yeah. Yeah, how are you liking it so far? We, we really like it. Uh, don't think much of the politics here. Uh, we moved here from Sammamish after being in Sammamish for 21 years, and I was very active in helping uh, uh, city councilmen get elected. Uh, I was on the planning commission over there and the planning advisory board for about eight years to help write the comprehensive plan and, and uh, the town center plan and deal with traffic concurrency and and all that sort of stuff. So I came over here with some really good understanding of politics and land (laughs) use planning. And, and I got to say, I'm blown away by how petty the politics over here is. I thought Sammamish was bad. It's, it's amazingly bad over here. You you crack me up sometimes when you ask me questions about, about it. And I'm like, I think I know, but you know, I probably don't know. And, all I know is I could not work in that environment. I'd be pulling my hair out. The meetings are even covering them as, as a pseudo journalist that I am. It's four hours of meeting, you know, that goes nowhere and it's just battle and it's finger pointing and it's name calling. And it's, there's not a timeline of, of projects and costs and how it gets done. And then when something get is, is finished or whatever, there comes another consultation or another review of what they voted to go ahead and go forward with. And then the ability for the public to interact and have a transparency in local government. It's, it's difficult to keep your head on straight. Yeah. The, you talk about a four hour meeting. Samantha should be happy to have four hour meetings or most recent one on March 2nd, I think it was, was five and a half hours. Um, yeah. Well after midnight and, and yeah, the 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 pettiness and the the clicks that are here on Bainbridge in our local political system are just eye rolling, and and you you've got um, people who are more interested in winning an argument yes than moving forward. You know this this constant. Uh, debate over a new police department. You know, when, when we first moved here, they were talking about a police department over 
uh, gosh, I forget what the location was, but it turned out to be highly polluted. Um, and, and so that went away. And I think there are probably good reasons for that. Then they were talking about buying some land and, and one of them was over near the fire, uh, new fire department uh, on, on uh, Madison or just off Madison, which struck me as a good place to have it. It's right there by 305. It's, it's uh, next to the fire department. Um, seems to me like that was a good possibility. Well, that went away. Then they bought Harrison Hospital for $9 million when the appraisal was, what, uh, 6 or $7 million or something like that. And I think nine, yeah. Well, yeah, right, and yeah. and um, and now now there are some on the council who want to start over again, and it's like, well, what what do you do with the building if you start over again? You're going to sell it for a loss. It, the time has come. They've been, from what the papers have said, they've been waiting about the police department for what ten years, fifteen years, or something like that. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> interesting having some old heads like uh, Ian Ritchie and uh, Johnny Evison, the author, that have grown up here and they were telling me that we didn't even have police on the island when they were kids the local police were in bremerton and they they told this story that was kind of funny they were having a kegger in the woods and all the high school kids were were drinking and stuff and somebody came out and said i called the cops (laughs) don't take an hour and a half yeah and then johnny was like we got 45 minutes to drink this beer (laughs) and now now we got a nine million dollar police station that's not even cracked the door open yet. Yeah, well, Sammamish was incorporated after being under King County rule, you know, forever. And and I was part of the incorporation campaign, uh, uh, supported and all that. And, and for everything that's bad about Sammamish now, um, I still think it's better than being under King County rule uh, because nobody at King County really gave a damn about what happened to Sammamish. And I suspect that was probably... But, pretty much the case here in Kitsap County. Uh, you know, Bainbridge was just this little island that that the county commissioners probably didn't really give a damn about. And 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 you do want to be under local rule, right. but holy cow, the, this city council, the, the previous city council, the intrigue, the, the backbiting, uh, you get council members who ignore public records requests. You get council members who ignore environmental laws. It's just, it's astounding. And if you're not part of the club, you don't get appointed to commissions. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just a, a amazing. I would have used another word than amazing, but. Uh... Well, family listening, I'm thinking. <laughs> um. What's your favorite restaurant here on the island? Um, Where'd you go on date night Friday? Well, we went down to the uh, Thai restaurant uh, on the waterfront. Uh, we really liked that place. Uh, we um, we loved Cafe Nolo when that was in business. Um, Plate and Pint is okay, uh, but it's you know it, it is what is it, you know it's a sports bar. It's, we're we're really disappointed that that there isn't a really good higher level uh, restaurant. We loved Manor House when it was open. Uh, We like uh, the Aga Cafe. That's a really nice place, Amelia Wynn. But, you know, Amelia Wynn is good and and we like it for the informality. But, you know, if you you want to go out for an anniversary or a really nice birthday dinner, uh, probably the Aga Cafe is, is the best one on the island right now. 
yeah it, it looks great definitely and um the winery there looks quaint as well. I've heard the food's really good there. Um, have you tried Marche, Greg Atkinson's? Um, we've eaten a Cafe Marche, and and um, I'm sorry, guys. We found the the food to be kind of hit and miss. Gotcha. That's all right. Yeah. That's how it is. I mean, well, you know, I don't I don't want to to really diss local restaurants. Right. It's tough enough. But, but you know. The, the the best French food that we like is Place Pagal over Pike Place Market. Good place. Yeah. Steamed squid there. Last time I was there, it was really good. Yeah. Um, what do you what do you see as the um, way to get past all these all this petty politics and uh, start <laughs> coexisting here on the island? Because it, it there's the growth movement and then there's the rural movement, but it doesn't, it's like Democrats and Republicans. They don't, they don't mesh. I understand that Winslow was incorporated to make it a city. So we could have police and the station should be somewhere centrally located in that incorporation of the Island. And for the most part, the rest of the Island is pretty rural. Uh, but I think you should be allowed to build a house on a piece of property and saving 65% of your property for, vegetation for aquifers and such is it's pretty stressful if you um really want to come here and retire and live your best life ever yeah well understand that the 65 percent rule was kind of a a hand-me-down from state uh, department of ecology that really wasn't initially uh, generated by the local government Uh, we went through this over in sammamish when i was on the planning commission and the the critical areas update um, CAO update was something that I was on the planning commission over there uh, when we did that, and I I and you know my tendencies are more environmental and slow growth and let's not cut down trees, but I also recognize that a property owner needs to be able to work his property. Now to me that doesn't necessarily mean that you just willy-nilly grant an upzoning. Uh, there has to be a really good reason to grant an upzoning, in my view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also means that that for those who say, well, let's just downzone, which is a big debate over in Sammamish, you have to have a really good reason to force a downzoning on somebody because they've paid taxes for their whatever their zoning is, R4, R6, and now you're going to take that property away from them and, and – downzone it to something less than that. I have a, a kind of a philosophical issue with that. But as we went through the CAO update over in Sammamish, I kept on saying, look, we're telling people yet again what they can't do with their property. Let's figure out a way with low impact development to tell them what they can do with their property. Mm-hmm. And that debate went nowhere on the planning commission. And I voted against the CAO update on a 6-1 vote because they wouldn't even have the discussion about let's look at low impact development, see what we can do to, to make it feasible for property owners to actually do at least some of what they want to do with their property. And they wouldn't have that debate over there. And then it turned out that the citizens made such an uproar. It took them another two years to adopt a CAO update. And by that time I was off the commission. And now over. Are you thoroughly briefed on the critical area ordinance here on, on the Island? I wouldn't say it was thoroughly brief, but I certainly understood what was going on. 
and and again, part of it was was there was a state mandate to, to return to kind of pre-development levels on, on stuff, and and you do have to be concerned about aquifers. And I know that there's there are some on the island who think that there's plenty of water that comes over from Kitsap County through the water pipeline from from across the bridge there. Uh, and and I don't know about that, but setting that aside, you still want to protect your aquifers. You just do. But with low impact development and and uh, stewardship, there are ways that you can do that. Now, one of the one of the problems that we have is that under state law, all the rainfall belongs to the state, so you you can't legally have your own uh, water catchment uh, in cisterns or rain barrels without going through all kinds of hoops, but legally you can't, aren't supposed to do that. And I can't have a rain barrel at my garden. Not legally. I gotta get, Hey, get rid of the rain barrel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Think about that one. Um, Yeah. The water all belongs to the state. Wow, which, which, you know, I think there should be some reasonableness involved, like you can do a rain barrel or something like that. But, but here we have have here on on Bainbridge, you know, something like three hundred thousand gallons of water a year is is uh, affluent water a year is is escaping from our treatment center into Puget Sound or into the bay here, and instead of instead of doing what it can to recapture that. And, and this is nothing new. This has been well understood on this island for years. And the city council just sort of says, well, it's too expensive to solve it. Think of how much of that water could go back into irrigation or, mm-hmm. or anything like that and be recirculated on the island. Now, does that mean that, that you want to go ahead and start really opening up the island to development? Well, I don't. Um, but there has to be reasonable use, and that's a principle under state law, by the way, reasonable use of your property. And if if your property is is uh, zoned, and I'm just going to make this up, R4, and you have an acre, you you do have setbacks that you have to worry about, particularly if you have sensitive areas on on that. And so you have what's called net density calculations which means that you might not be able to build four units per acre uh, because of all this other stuff. But there's also the concept of clustering Mm -hmm. uh, the development. Uh, That's where you would wind up getting into townhomes and condos and stuff like that. Density building, which is kind of going on right now. Yeah. But, but at the same time, the whole idea of putting affordable housing up there by the schools at sportsman club and, and uh, what is new Brooklyn is is to me lunacy because that's not near anything except the schools and affordable housing you know you're you're presumably going to have elderly people as part of that affordable housing and they would have to drive to anywhere or take a car or a cab or, yeah, or a bus if you what were they thinking 60 units there and there's all the children cuz there's three three schools right there it would have to build out a roundabout um it would there once again they there's natural aquifer on that property 
um, where would the rainfall go if that dense square was just concrete and, and materials? What would go on with the water there? I think it'd be a bit of a nightmare for sure. And I also think that that affordable housing area, I think it's a dead conversation now. It's been- Well, I, ho I hope so, so much. Well, and here's the other thing. Mo most of the roads, I, you know, pick a figure percentage, what, 90% of the roads, 95% of the roads, you know, you get out of downtown Winslow and out of the brand new uh, subdivisions, these are all rural-based roads. Yeah. They're they crumbling up shoulders. the edges, no shoulders. Yeah, they don't have edges, they, they uh, shoulders, they don't have bike lanes, they don't have sidewalks. Mm -hmm. And and it is it is you know, again just to go back to this this uh, property at Sportsman Club, if they built this property or developed this property under again under state law, you can only require them to build a frontage sidewalk along the frontage of the property. You could not uh, force them to build a sidewalk down to Madison uh, mm -hmm. because that's that's just not permitted under state law. So, so um, what does that mean? Well, that means either the city has to, to go ahead and, and improve the road or you don't improve the road. Now you have a rural road with another big subdivision of some kind. And again, you, you wind up with a, uh, a problem of how do you get around with it? And, and growth does not pay for growth. And anybody who says that it does is lying to you. I mean, there's just no other way to put about it. Because, because when it comes to building roads, again, under state law, the developer is only required to do his fair share of road improvements. You've got what's called background traffic, and that's all the traffic that exists there already before the development goes in. And improving the road on that background traffic is up to the city and the taxpayers. It's not up to the developer. The developer pays his fair share you know, a left turn lane, a right turn lane, uh, uh, you know, putting the curbs in and the sidewalk in along his frontage. And maybe he'll have to contribute to a traffic light down here at Madison and, and some other place. But, but growth does not pay for growth. Were you here when they were debating the bridge to nowhere, as <laughs> I coined it? Yes, I was. $14 yes, million dollars to get from one side of the street to the other in a random spot. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, I, I, I could, I could theoretically make an argument that, that those who live in Vineyard Lane would like to have a nice shortcut rather than going down to high school road or, or whatever to, so that they could get over, walk over to the QFC complex or, or, or to some of those other mm -hmm. commercial areas there, but I would I would have to suggest uh, that that the number of people from Vineyard Lane who would do that would be very small. Yep, and it's certainly not going to be anybody who's going to Safeway for shopping because they're going to have shopping bags, and they're going to put that in their car. So so there's a cost benefit analysis that I'm not sure was ever done. <laughs> you know, it looked, it looked to me like they got this grant and let's find a place to spend it. And that was it. But then, but then you also get into the, uh, what was it? The $15 million bond program that went down to overwhelming both voter defeat. And, yeah. and 
And that grant, I think, was five million, and the bridge was going to be fourteen. So we would, have, as taxpayers, foot the bill for nine million of it. Yeah, it was crazy. And and where could you take nine million dollars? And even that part of that five million dollar grant, I'm sure it wasn't earmarked for the bridge. And and what could you do for bike lanes? You know, you could I, I buy a money. hospital and call it the new police station. Yeah, yeah. But but and then the fifteen million dollar road fund that was voted down, they didn't even have have definitive road projects in mind. It was like it was a slush fund, and God mm-hmm. help you if you give this council a slush oh, the, fund. The yeah. mobility legislation too that got shot down. That's they what were, I'm about. Yeah, there was like it would cost a million dollars a block to grow that out, and it would take twenty years or something like that, I believe. Of course, this is bystander, so no fact checking allowed, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it was an incredibly poorly thought out. Uh, I agree. On fun, and it deserved to be voted down, and it went down in flames. Yeah, I mean, even the mayor came on this program and said, "I got my um, voters pamphlet in the mail," and I was like, "Who wrote this?" <laughs> You could not define where the money was going yeah. at all. Yeah. And, and it's something that's needed too. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I've got my beef with bi- bicyclists who don't ignore or who, who don't pay attention to rules of the road. I, you know, I get really annoyed at them. I've had bicyclists blow through stop signs right in front of me. Uh, well, now you can roll through them. Yes, well, prior to yeah. this year. Anyway, that's a whole different topic. Well, I don't but, know. You're talking about bicyclists here. But, um, I get into these arguments a, a lot. So yeah, but uh, you, should, you know, should I have to pay a tab for my bicycle? Because well, of, I think you should. I'm okay with that. You know, but you've, you've got you've got Fletcher Bay and Miller Road, which is a major arterial. Yes, and and it needs bike lanes. Um, Take some of that mobility money and do that all the way up, all the way up to three hundred five. Well, they did uh, widen the road there. That's, well, they spent some spots, money there in spots, but but I, I really question the priorities that the city staff and the city council come up with. Yeah, I mean, I, I do drive a car. I do ride a bike. Um, there's a huge bicycling. Uh, community here we have a huge event called the chili hilly a 32 mile um, bike event but I, I start to see the the counter arguments too that these bicyclists come over here especially for the chili hilly the ferry fee is waived that day our island is incredibly busy for eight to ten hours with that bicycling event and we have to have staff and volunteers and police out there and um it disrupts the regular islanders day right so nobody can get on the ferry during during that day a lot of the times unless they walk on because it's just littered with bicycles they come drive around they don't stay here and spend money Um, there's a big push to to dislike bicyclists around here and when you couple that with the lack of mobility around the island with the crumbling sidelines of the roads and, and no real bike lane plan. 
it 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 can be a place where we butt heads with cyclists for sure. Well, and and we've got this current debate about whether or not to uh, dedicate Grand Forest North to uh, mountain bikers. Yeah, and, that that's and, some newbie. That ain't happening. <laughs> well, okay, that's fine. But I actually don't uh, object to the idea of having a dedicated place place where the mountain bikers can go do their thing. We we had that over. Uh, near Sammamish in a, a place called Duthy Hill Park. Uh, that was dedicated for for mountain bikers to go off and and they had the ramps and they had the the uh, yeah. berms and all that stuff and and uh, I, I don't have a philosophical problem with that. It is is what? Grand Forest North the best place? I don't know. I've actually never walked through Grand Forest North. I walk walk through there often and and I I like it being a dense forest. And there's also those little mountain bike ramp things at Battle Point Park now, just outside um, the roller hockey rink. There's also this short drive to uh, Hurricane Ridge where there's all kinds of mountain biking going on. Well, it's not that short to Hurricane Ridge. Well, outdoors. (laughs) A couple hours. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, the objection that I have to the bicyclists is that they – they think that uh, some of them, I think I get a bunch of hate mail here going on. Um, they, there are a lot of them who think that they own the roads and the rules of the roads don't, don't uh, apply to them. Mm-hmm. And again, over in Sammamish, we had the Burke Gilman trail that went, went along the uh, East. Lake Rode it for most of my life as a trail. Kid. And, and uh, without getting into all the politics that, went into developing the East Lake Sammamish Trail, which I've walked many a time and, and enjoyed it when I lived there. Some of the development of that uh, really required uh, the county, which owns the trail, to work with the homeowners that some of whom illegally encroached on the right-of-way, but some of whom they built their homes with the permitting of King County before Sammamish was incorporated. And and the Cascade Bicycle Club really pressed very hard to to get that uh, East Lake Sammamish Trail approved. And they didn't give a damn about how King County was operating as a thug against some of the homeowners there. Mm -hmm. And the city of Sammamish had to step up and defend the homeowners. And some of that litigation goes on to this day. It's a lot of logistics to it. Yep. All right. Let's wrap this conversation up for now. And I look forward to having a beer with you down the road, talking more. Yeah. Well, we're getting pretty close where we can do that again. Yeah. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone. Um, what? Tell people where they can get your newsletter and um, kind of sure. what it yeah. pertains. Yeah. The, the newsletter is at lehamnews.com, L-E-E-H-A-M news.com. Uh, we have a combination of free wall and paywall content on it. It, it covers uh, commercial aviation. It principally focuses on Airbus and Boeing, but we do get into uh, other uh, related topics, so supply chain and, and what have you. Um, and uh, we we do analysis and, and uh, breaking news type of stuff. And in fact, uh, we on occasion... Uh, do some featurettes that have really little to do with today's aviation. Uh, I've 
flown on the Douglas DC-7 and, and uh, DC-3, and uh, I've done some write-ups about that. I'm working on a story as we speak about uh, the Berlin Airlift Association and they're re- restoring a C-54 uh, that was uh, uh, involved in the Berlin Airlift. And, and uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting little site. Um, and there's, a, a, again, a paywall feature as well as a, a lot of free content. Awesome. Do uh, airline industry people invite you out? Say, hey, come test ride this new uh, trick pony I got? Um, not so much anymore. Occasionally, I was actually invited to the Alaska Airlines uh, entry into service of the MAX on March 1st. Uh, the only trouble is you had to be at the airport at 4 a.m. And I just, uh, you know, if if I, I would have had to go over and spend a night in a hotel. Of course, the first ferry isn't until 4.45. <clears throat> and I just wasn't willing to do that. Yeah, I hear you. All right, Scott Hamilton, Leham News. I appreciate your time today. I look forward to seeing you soon. Yep, me too. Be kind.